Okay. Well, we're going to come back and uh, open up our Bibles to Nehemiah, and we're going to open them open them up to uh, the sixth chapter, the sixth chapter, and remember that Nehemiah means Yahweh as consolation or comfort, and so this book is can be seen on so many different levels. One, you could just read the book from a Man, a leadership perspective. Nehemiah, what a great leader in the Lord. I mean, he is just an amazing leader. Um, you could read it from that level. But also, uh, this book is a picture of how the Holy Spirit, in cooperation with you, <laughs> rebuilds a life. And why do I say that? Because, remember, we have been through Ezra... And now Nehemiah, and we're heading towards Esther. And you have to know that the Jewish people were taken out of their homeland up to the place of Babylon, which is the picture of sin, of evil in the Bible. And that happened in three waves, 605 B.C., 597 B.C., and then the ultimate in 586 B.C. when Jerusalem was wiped out. During that time, or during, during the time that they're in uh, exile, the power uh, structure shifts. The Babylons are overtaken by the Persians. And that happens, uh, you know, in Daniel 5. And that happens somewhere around 538 B.C., And then the king of Persia, Cyrus, issues a decree and allows the Jews to go back into their homeland. He does that in around 538 or 537 B.C. And so they do. They go back to their homeland. And the first wave was in 538 or 537 B.C. under Zerubbabel. We talked about that in Ezra. That's in Ezra chapters 1 through 6. And then the second wave went back, and that was about, I guess, 50,000 people. And then the second wave went back in around 458 or 457 B.C. under Ezra. That's chapter 7 and 10 of Ezra. And then the third wave of Jews who are allowed to come back into the homeland from their exile come back under the book of Nehemiah. And in Ezra, remember, what is built? The temple. The temple was built in Ezra, but the city still lays in ruins. And so in Nehemiah, what is built? The city is rebuilt, the the wall, or the walls and the gates. Now, why am I telling you all of that? Well, again, Ezra, or I didn't say this first, so it's not again tonight, but I have told you in the past, Ezra means helper, comforter, picture of the Holy Spirit. You can go to John 16, 13. It's that word paraclete that can mean comfort, comforter or helper. Nehemiah meets comforter. Isn't that amazing? And then um, uh, we see Esther's coming next, and we see three areas or places in which the Holy Spirit can work. Ezra is a rebuilding of the temple, the spirit. Nehemiah is the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and that's that place in, in, in us. It's the rebuilding of the whole person, the mind, the will, and the emotions. Some 
summed up as uh, being called the soul. You can see this, that we're a three-part entity, body, soul, and spirit. You see it in the book of Thessalonians. Paul talks about it. And we talked last time uh, that the body, obviously, is you, you can see in the scripture in Romans 8.11, God's going to take care of the body for us, although we're going to die here unless the Lord comes back first for us. We're going to get a glorified, resurrected body, folks. So what, what, what's happening here is, look at this. We have a people, the people of God, who are in this place, Babylon, because of rebellion and sin. And they've gone up there, and they've been put there, but now it's that retaking of their life. Actually, God is helping them to retake their life and to bring them back into the land where they live and dwell under God. And the first thing God does is establish the temple. And the temple is the picture of the heart because our spirit and God's spirit commune with each other. And really, what really is you is your spirit. And before you become a Christian, for lack of a better way of saying it, your spirit doesn't commune with God. It's not turned on, so to speak. But when you become a Christian, that's where you live and you come alive and your spirit bears witness with the spirit of God that he's our father. And so they did that first in Ezra. But then it's this rebuilding where God takes a life that's in ashes First comes salvation, but then he builds into the life Christ-likeness. And so all of us, our soul, our mind, our will, our emotions, as we give them over to the Lord, see, we start to rebuild, and he rebuilds. I know I said that. It sounds weird the way I said it, but I said it on purpose. As we set our heart to all the promises of God and all the things of God and obeying God and uh, uh, sitting there under his uh, teaching through the word of God and as we obey it, see, we start to rebuild our lives, but he actually does the rebuilding. (laughs) And I said it that way on purpose because we're cooperating with the Lord here. And that was so evident right in one of the earlier chapters that we've been going over in Nehemiah when we saw all the different gates. The sheep gate. You can't come to the Lord except by the Lamb of God. The sheep gate. The fish gate. Once you come into the family of God, one of the things that will start to flow out of your life is you'll be a fisher of men. The old gate. Jeremiah 16. Ask for the old pass. Ask for the good way and walk therein. The basics of Christianity always go back to the cross. And these old ways, the, the, the fundamental ways, stay there. You know, Christianity, obviously, life is hard, but God tells us in the book of Acts what we should be doing. Learning the doctrine, praying together, praising together, breaking bread together, and then going out and sharing the gospel together. Boy, that doesn't sound like a complicated formula. And so come back to the old gate, the valley gate. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We stay in that place of humility and repentance, so we receive grace for living because we've already received, the sheep gate, grace for salvation you get. Then what we do is we 
go past the dung gate. There's the dung gate in, in, in the rebuilding of our life. Empty out the dung, the stuff that's displeasing to God. But what do you do? You don't just leave an empty place. You fill it up at the fountain gate, at the pool of Siloam. Siloam, sorry. The Holy Spirit speaks of the fountain that wells up within us. That's in John 7. And then the water gate, that speaks of being washed by the water of the word. And the horse gate, symbolizing Jesus coming back and that we're at war right now, but he's coming back with us. These are all things that the Lord builds into our lives, folks. This is what Christianity is, as symbolized by the gates in the life of us, in the life of Jerusalem, but also the life of us. And the east gate, Jesus will be coming back through that gate, the expectancy and the hope, and that's a purifying doctrine. We talked about that. And the inspection gate, we must give an account for this life. Even, yes, us Christians, we're not going to give an account on whether or not we're in uh, for salvation or eternal life. No, that's covered by the blood. But we will give an account for the way in which we were stewards, what we did with what God asked us to do or gave to us, right? The inspection gate. And then it all comes full circle. We come back to the sheep gate. Everything is for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what we build into our lives. That's what he builds into our lives. But as soon as you start to do it, remember? You know, it might be somebody who's never known the Lord who wants to come to the Lord, and as soon as they turn their heart to start to walk there, to do, you know, to cooperate, cooperate with the Lord and what he's going to do and take ashes and make a beautiful life, as soon as we do that, or maybe we are a backslide, we're in a backslidden state and we want to come back to the Lord, as soon as we say, and we, we start to walk in that way, guess what is always going to happen? There's going to be opposition. And that's what the book of Nehemiah has been about in the last couple uh, times we've been here. They get the uh, things going, rebuilding the wall. And in chapter 4, it says that these enemies came in verse 1, and they were furious and indignant and mocked the Jews. That's the enemy. Did you ever notice that in the Bible, uh, well, first of all, I, we talked about last week, three enemies to the Christian, the world and its system of thinking, we talked about that, the flesh, that old carnal nature that wants to serve self. Remember, if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap the flesh, but if you sow to the Spirit, you'll Reap the Spirit. Your flesh is in enmity. There's a thing between God and the flesh, right? And our flesh, even for the Christian, wrestles with the Spirit. There's a war going on inside. We're doing one of two things at all time, either walking according to the flesh or walking according to the Spirit, aren't we? And Galatians tells us what the spiritual uh, walking looks like, and it also tells us what a uh, fleshly or carnal walk looks like. It's so true, right? Outbursts of wrath, fleshly, jealousies, and on and on and on. So, so you have the world, the flesh, but what's the third enemy of our soul? That's the devil. But isn't it fascinating that the devil in two primary places in the Bible is at, at that same exact time is described as a lion? Rawr, he just wants to devastate you. But also... Are they laughing about my thing? Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, the, the, a lion 
you know, fierce, wants to pounce on you. But at the same time, the enemy of your soul masquerades as an angel of light. So the enemy of your soul is wily. He starts out maybe trying to devastate you like a prowling lion, just roaring. But if he can't get you that way, he's going to come in and masquerade as an angel of light. Like stuff like this, you know, real flattering. You know, you know talk nice. Send these uh, fiery darts to your brain. Did God really say that? Come on, he would never do that. You deserve a break today. Come on, it's okay to live this way or live that way. Everybody's doing it. Come on, and he does these things. And here today, you're going to see that. In chapter 4, he's, the, the enemies of, of, of God here and the enemies of the people are indignant and mock the people. They mock Nehemiah and their workers, and they try to, try to get them that way. Look down in verse 8 of chapter 4. They try to attack Jerusalem and create confusion. That's one way the enemy wants to shoot his fiery darts at you, is to get you confused about issues. But the Bible says that God's not a God of disorder or chaos. If you follow the Lord, it might be difficult, but it will be easy to understand. He'll make it clear and plain which way to go. You understand? Okay. What else does he do? Remember last week, I I didn't do a very good job in this chapter, quite frankly. (laughs) But in chapter 5, then, the enemy takes a different tact. You know what the enemy does? The enemy comes from within, and some of the rich Jewish people start charging exorbitant credit prices for food to the, uh, the lower class, so to speak, or people who couldn't afford as much, and what do they do? From within, the enemy uses their own people to enslave the others and create oppression within. What did Jesus say about the wheat and the tares? There's going to be wheat and weeds in the church. And so you start reading that, and you're like, well, that's easy. Let's just go and pull out or kick out the weeds. But they asked Jesus about that, the disciples, and he says, no, let me take care of it at the judgment. You guys just keep living your life. So within the church, maybe there can be uh, some attacks, but also this, within yourself, there can be oppression. You can feel enslaved when the real truth about you is that you're free in Christ. Are you catching that? And that's what the story of chapter 5 was, and I don't think I did a very good job of, of, of explaining that to you last week. Well, guess what? The work keeps going on, and now in chapter 6, the enemy takes a different tact. He can't get you from frontal assault, just punch you in the mouth. It didn't work against the people of God. They knew that they were being directed. They had a wonderful leader in Nehemiah, and the Holy Spirit you know, is working and, 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 and they tried to just come at them right frontal attack, and it didn't work. They just kept the work going. A great testament to the courage and the, um, uh, the, the uh, stability, there's the word I'm looking for, of Nehemiah. Nehemiah knew who he was in God, remember? And that's where I talked to you about belonging, worth, and power and resource. If you're in Christ, listen to this. If you're in Christ, the message of the gospel that is screaming to you is that you belong. 
You could never say, I don't belong anywhere in Christ, because in Christ you belong. As many as received them, or him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. How much more could you belong than being in God's family? Isn't that beautiful? You say, well, I don't feel very, I feel worthless. In Christ, God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, enemies, gross, God sent his son Jesus to us to get us back. I'm paraphrasing here. Do you know how much you're worth? It costs his son. And the last thing is, you could go to a myriad of scriptures, but the Holy Spirit comes into your life and you say, I don't know if I can handle that. Yes, you by yourself probably can't, but that's the place to start. Just agree. You can't handle it and say, Lord, I need your power by the person and work of the Holy Spirit to supply all that I need by your grace, and he gives it to you. I'm convinced. So you could never say, I don't belong. You can't say that in the Christian life. You do belong. You can't say, I don't mean anything in the Christian life. You're so worth everything. It cost the sun. You can't say, I don't know how to do that. Well, you might say that, but you, you know what I mean? How do I navigate this? I'm not unsure. Yes, I understand. There might be some uncertainties, but in the Lord, he'll guide and direct you as you move. Isn't that beautiful? And Nehemiah, look, he was such a great leader. He knew all of these things. When they start coming to him with full frontal attack and even criticizing him in some ways, you know how he lashed back? He didn't. He didn't need to. He derived his worth from the Lord, not from people. So when people criticized him, when he knew he was set in his mission from God, it didn't faze him. He just kept doing the work and helping the people get along. Isn't that great? It's such a word for us, folks. You, you say to yourself, you, you know, when people come to you with problems, it sounds like pastor speak. It ain't pastor speak. Well, I got this with that and this with that. And the, and the answer is grow closer, closer to the Lord. Just fall under the shadow of his wings. He'll give you everything you need to navigate all of that stuff. Isn't that beautiful? Well, that's where we are. And we get to chapter 6. And now the enemy of our souls shifts gears. No frontal attack. No oppression from within. Let's do something else. And here it comes. Let's be nice. Let's look attractive. He says this, Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors and the gates. I want you to note that. Sometimes after great victories is the greatest temptations. They still had a little bit of work to do, but the massive work was over. And it was complete, 52 days, and they rebuilt it. But notice, there's just a little bit. They had to do the trim, so to speak. But the enemy of your soul knows it, and he'll never stop. He can't take away your place in Christ. No way he can do that. But if he can knock out your testimony and set you back, he wants to do that. So he knows you still have work to do. You understand that? There's no retirement in the Christian life. Until you go home to be with the Lord or he comes to get us, there's no retirement. We're in a war. And it's a war for your testimony, but then what else? For the souls of men and women, boys and girls.
So that's Sam Ballot, verse 2, and Geshem sent to me saying, come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me no harm. You know, that's a way of saying, meet me halfway. He just said that. You wouldn't know it because you don't know the geography. That's okay. He's saying, hey, can we meet halfway? The enemy's called down to Nehemiah. Hey, listen, I know you got some work left to do, but come on, can you meet me halfway? Right? What does the world always say to the church? I want you to bend. You don't have to bend all the way. Just bend on this one thing just a little bit and show that you are empathetic to the world. But the Bible says that we're not to love the world or anything in it. We are not to love the the world, and yet we're called to live in the world. Jesus was perfect at it. He would go out in the places with the people. He never turned down an invitation to go places. You know how sometimes somebody that you know uh, might be a bad influence on you, and that's a legitimate thing. You say, no, I can't go there. Jesus didn't. He went there because he was so secure perfect blend of grace and truth. He never turned down an invitation. He could go there and not, but here the world is saying, come halfway. You don't even have to come all the way. Just come half the, uh, half of the way. Isn't that interesting? The enemies say that. So I sent messengers to them and I, I'm doing a great work. Do you think Nehemiah is bragging right there? I don't think so. I think what he recognized was this was his mission from God. Boy, it is liberating to know what your mission is from God. But here's the funny part. (laughs) I don't know exactly all of your missions, but I already know your mission (laughs) because I read the Bible and so do you. Your mission is to glorify God wherever you're planted. Wherever you're planted, glorify God. Just make him big in your cubicle, in wherever you go, whatever you do, make him big big. Make him plain and evident to a world that's hurting. Let them see your fruit, your spiritual fruit, and then tell people about Jesus. What are you to be? Your ministry is to be a reconciliation ministry. What's that mean? Yes, you're just pointing people to Jesus so that they'll be uh, reconciled back to the Father. Isn't that beautiful? That's what your ministry is. Wherever you go, whatever you do, that's your ministry, folks. So here, When you know your ministry, don't get knocked off course. The Lord moves you across the country. That's your same ministry, folks. Lord moves you over here. Great. That's your ministry. Takes you into this job. Same ministry. Takes you out of that job. Same ministry. All the circumstances can change, but the ministry never does. And it's flowing out of an abiding life with Jesus. So he says, I'm doing a great work. He, was, he knew what he was supposed to be doing. He'd heard from the Lord on this. It was liberating to him. When his feet hit the floor in the morning, he didn't have to wonder. He just knew. He was stable like a tree planted by the river, you see. And so he says, I'm doing a great work, so I can't come down. You know, sometimes people in leadership positions have to say no. You all are shaking your head, but I don't think you know that. (laughs) Because if people up here say no to some people, they get their feelings hurt. But sometimes you have to say no. Here, it's a very attractive looking thing. Wait a minute, we could make some sort of, 
you know, maybe if we just make some sort of uh, uh, truce or peace treaty with them, they'll leave us alone. And here he says, no, I won't meet you halfway. Guess what? If there was Fox News and MSNBC, guess what Nehemiah would be called at that point by maybe both sides? Here, Nehemiah says, no, uh, I'm doing a great work. I can't come down. Why would the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? He had a great sense of purpose, doesn't he? You can feel it coming through the page. But they sent me this message four times, and I said no four times. Can you imagine how tempting it would be to go meet them halfway? I bet you had some advisors telling him to do it so that because they were you know, afraid or whatever. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me as before the fifth time. Catch this, circle it with an open letter. It means it wasn't in an envelope. It was unscrolled so that anybody who was carrying the letter could read what the letter was saying, which means Sanballat did this on purpose so he could slander Nehemiah and backstab him and spread rumors about him. Anybody ever have that happen? Watch how Nehemiah responds. So they sent an open letter, and in it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Well, it's got a kernel of truth in the sense that they are coming from Babylon under the direction of the king, but rebelling from them? Not really, but they're breaking off, right? So there's like a kernel of truth to it. And the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you're rebuilding the wall. Well, yeah, that's true. That you may be their king. Well, not really. I've been appointed. Uh, You've also appointed prophets to proclaim uh, concerning you at uh, Jerusalem, saying there is a king in Judah. Now, these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. Sounds so wonderful, doesn't it? Sounds so logical, doesn't it? And yet there's this thing with Nehemiah with his sense of purpose and his stability in the Lord and his ability to discern the issues. You know, that's what I think rightly dividing the truth means. You know the word of God, you stay in prayer and close to the Lord, and when you see issues coming into your life, you're able to navigate them according to the word by the Spirit and be a really discerning person, including sometimes having to say no for the greater good of the people. You get that? That's that's a a great thing uh, to be able to do it in in, in a leadership fashion. Amazing. Well, verse 8, then I sent to him saying, no such thing as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. I don't know that there's malice here. He's just saying, no, that's not true. It's not true. For they were all trying to make us, look at this, circle this. Here's the enemy's tact, afraid. The enemy wants you to be afraid. If he can't get you by being nice to you, First of all, if he can't get you by the frontal attack, maybe he can get you by oppressing you or enslaving you in something. He'll try that. Maybe even from people within the church, wheat and the tares. But if that doesn't work, hey, maybe I'll be an angel of light and look pretty and come to you and be real seductive in my talk about what you should do. But with a real sense of purpose, you see, and staying uh, uh, tight to the Lord by his word, you can fend that off. So what does the enemy do again? He doesn't stop. He tries to make you afraid. Afraid of a whole bunch of things. 
afraid of your family, afraid of situations, afraid of uh, what would happen if that person said this or that person did this or that person did that. See, here's what uh, Nehemiah did. He just left it with the Lord. Hard to do. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's hard to do. He was so secure in his relationship with the Lord that he just left it with the Lord. They're all trying to make us afraid. Their hands won't be weakened in the work, and it won't be done. Now, therefore, O God, listen to this. Listen to, how, listen to how long this prayer was. Look how long this prayer is. Here's a man of prayer, Nehemiah. If you just want to study Nehemiah's prayer, it's beautiful. Here he just says, now, God, strengthen my hands. I just need some strength to do this. That's his prayer. And afterward, I came to the house of this guy, this guy named Shemaiah, the son of Dahlia, the son of whatever, Mathabel, who was a secret informer. And somehow he could discern this. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Now, you know this, right? That's a uh, lay people can't just go into the temple. The priests go into the temple. So again, look at this attack. It sounds really spiritual. This prophet guy comes to me and says, hey, he doesn't know he's a secret informer yet. He goes, hey, come on, let's go within the temple. But what did Nehemiah know? No, the Bible in the first five books of the law tells us that a lay person couldn't go into the temple area. They could be outside, but they couldn't go inside. That was for the priests. He would, be, he would be sinning if he did this. He knew the word of God. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you. Again, trying to make you afraid. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. Can you imagine if you got that message from the prophet? You mean somebody's out to murder me? Shoot, I'll join you in the temple. Again, he's so secure in his relationship with the Lord, and he so reveres the word of God, he knows... He's not allowed to go into the temple. It has to be wrong. God wouldn't violate his own word. Isn't that beautiful? So I said, should such a man as I flee, you think he's bragging? I don't think so. You know what he's saying? A child of God isn't doing that. (laughs) A child of God wouldn't do that. I'm not going to run into the temple and break God's law. There must be something wrong with you if you're saying that because God wouldn't violate his own law, his own word. No way. Would such a man as I, you would say that, as such a lady as I, not that we're any great shakes, but we have the greatest that lives in us. And he makes us stable and secure in him. And we don't violate his law because we want to obey because he loved us so much. Now we love him back, so we want to obey. And he says, stay out of the temple. So we stay out of the temple. And I said, well, should such a man as I flee? And who is there uh, such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I won't do that. I won't go in. Then I perceived that God had not sent him at all. You see that? Because he connected the word with the situation. That's rightly dividing the word. And said, I can't do that. I perceive that God had sent him, not sent him at all, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sebalad had hired him. It had to be it because God wouldn't do this. For this reason, he was hired. Why? To make him scared that he should be afraid and act that way in sin. Oh, my Here it comes. When a great move or work of God starts to happen, if you can't stop the work, attack the leader. 
you saw it. If you, many of you in the back back there are too young. <laughs> you appear too young, but lots of us saw it in the 80s, man. One televangelist after another. Bang, bang, bang. They get all of this money and all this TV and all this stuff, and all this stuff comes spewing out, and they're fire and brimstone, and at the very time they're pounding their fists, they're doing the very thing that they're railing against. And I'm not making fun. I'm saying that if the enemy can't uh, do all of these other strategies, maybe just go and attack the leader, because if I get the leader, I'm going to mess up a whole bunch of people who are in that church. You'll be mad and hurt and angry and be away from the Lord. And so here he just goes, I'm going to make you afraid. And, 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 and Nehemiah says, wow, I, I, I discern it. You've shown me this, Lord, so I won't be afraid and I won't sin that they might have caused for an evil report that they might reproach me. My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, Sanballat according to these, their works, verse 14, and the prophetess Nodiah and the rest of the prophets who have, would have made me afraid. And, and apparently there was an entire slew of prophets who were in a conspiracy to wipe him out. Do you catch that? Well, the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elu in 52 days, and it happened when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations around us saw these things, that they were disheartened in their own eyes. For they perceived that this work was done by our God. Also in these days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came to them, for many in Judah were pledged to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehanoah had married the daughter of Meshalem, that was a wall worker, we know that from chapter 3, son of Barachiah, and also they reported his good deeds before me and reported my words to him. Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. They started to get some letters back and forth from this man, Tobiah, who some way was in, you know, a, a relative of people who were involved in the work, and they were just trying to, you see it, uh, just try to scare Nehemiah that if you go against us and you don't do what we say, we're going to wreck it for your whole operation. But man, Nehemiah just stayed the course, didn't he? Well, check this out. Then it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors... The, uh, when, uh, the doors, when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani, and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel or the palace. Isn't it good in the work of God, right? And so interesting when God sees a person, a man or a woman, a boy or a girl who cares like Ezra or Nehemiah, he works with that person, and then things start to happen, and, and opposition comes. What's one great thing that we see throughout the Bible? Don't leave it to just one person. Have other people branch out and let there be leaders. Paul said this. He said, find some devoted men and te teach them how to teach others. Right? Deliver what you know and uh, raise them up. And here uh, you see Hanani and uh, Hananiah, the leader of the citadel. What are they? They're faithful men and they fear God. Who should be leaders of the church? People, look at this, who are faithful. Folks, you say, well, that's so easy. I mean, I would know that. Yeah, well, listen, what if you're in charge of the sidewalks and it's 8.30, and you had a homework project with your kid till 
you know, 1.45 in the morning on a Saturday night and it's zero degrees outside and, you know, you come to a little church and you live 10 miles away and you don't feel like getting out of bed. <laughs> you can become not very faithful pretty quick, right? Happens to me. Well, the Bible says here and other places, success, according to the Lord, is not success as we think it, It's faithfulness, well done, good and successful servant. No, it says well done, good and faithful servant. So here's the question. What is God calling you to do? If you've said yes to the Lord in something, whether it be here in this church or wherever, are you faithful? And faithful means you're responsible. And faithful means you're dependable. And you keep coming and showing up and being there and being there and being there. That's faithful. And so he picked these men. Of course, what a great pick. But they also feared God. They had less fear of men and more fear, reverential awe and wonder at the Lord. That's the people who should lead. Oh, by the way, if you're a parent or you're a discipler, and all of us should be disciplers, What are you trying to raise up in people? You're trying to raise up in people for them to be faithful and for them to fear the Lord. Get it? So here's who he brings up. He brings these people up. And I said to them, don't let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. In other words, don't open the gates up early in the morning because attacks come early in the morning or late at night. So guys, just wait until the sun is hot. Wait until it's starting to come up a little bit. Don't open too early. And while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. Now, the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up the first return and found written in it. And this is a recital of the people who had come back in Ezra, okay? And so I'm not going to go through all of this, but these are the people of the province, verse six, who came back from the captivity. And guess what you have to see here? You had to prove your genealogy, folks. If you couldn't prove you were in the family of God, you weren't stationed in the place that, you were, that was allotted to you. And you say, well, is that harsh? Well, that's teaching you an amazing principle is that you and I are are to know that we know that we know, well documented, and it is through the word, that you're a child of God. That's what it means for you. If we just knew that we were children of a good God, and we lived like that, the world would be so different. And so uh, this is a recital then of these people who have come back. And You see here in verses 8 through 25, they group them in families. 27 through 38, they group them according to villages. Uh, The largest group is in verse 38. That's this place we don't even know about, Sina. Don't know where that is. Actually, that word means hated, but anyway, that's just for interest's sake. 39 through 42 is the priests. The Levites are in 43. The singers are in 44. The gatekeepers are or in 45, 46 through 60 are various temple servants. And then look over in 61, just to remember our point, 
If you were of uncertain ancestry, 61 through 65, they couldn't identify their father's house. You see that? Uh, those are the ones that weren't allotted uh, any real space. And then some of them, listen to this. This is the sad part. This is why I've gone through this with you. In verse 63, there were some priests who couldn't identify their genealogy. They didn't know. Oh, is that a word for the American church? We've got people in the pulpits that don't really believe in the Bible, don't believe in the Word of God, and don't stick to the Word of God. And that's really, really sad. Well, you could keep going on. Uh, there's 70,000 or 7,000 servants over in 66, and uh, uh, I took you through all of that. Look in verse 73. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people in Nethanim and all Israel dwelt in their cities. It's just telling you who dwelt. And you say, my goodness, why did you even take us through this? Do you know what the Hall of Fame, Hall of Faith is in the New Testament, Hebrews 11? Hebrews 11, it talks about all the different people who had un unbelievable great faith. This chapter, chapter 7 of Nehemiah, is the Old Testament hall of faith. What the Lord is saying for time immoral, time immoral, <laughs> what am I trying to say? In memorial, there we go, whatever I'm trying to say, late night. Check this out. These people were comfortable up in Babylon for all this time, but they wanted to return to where I was, the city of God. Isn't that beautiful? And so he documents this here. It's the Old Testament hall of faith. And when the seventh month came, we're going to do chapter 8 and we're going to close. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. You say, well, why would he say seventh month? Well, he says seventh month because there are a lot of the Jewish festivals happen in the seventh month, folks. Seventh month is the fall time. How many Jewish festivals are there? Go to Leviticus 23, seven. Seven Jewish festivals, okay? And he's going to talk about one really important one right here. He's going to talk about, uh, later in this chapter, the Feast of Tabernacles. That's one of these. All right, we're going to get to it. Now, all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in the front of the water gate. Why, why do you think they went to the water gate? Water was representative of the Word of God, Ephesians. It's the Word of God. They stand in front of the water gate and they tell Ezra. Now, this is the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah says, Ezra, this is your chance. This is your shot. Here it comes. This is what you were preparing for. By the way, in Ezra, it says, he prepared his heart. He did the Word. And then he taught he was preparing all this time for such a time as this. And here he comes, Ezra the scribe, and he brings the book of the law of Moses. How many books in the law of Moses? Five, the first five books of the Bible. That's where the law is detailed. And apparently they'd gotten away from it, of course. So the Lord had commanded Israel, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month starting to come into the feast times. The feast times, okay? Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate. Of course, John 15, 3, Ephesians 5, 26, the water of the word, from morning until midday. This means about six hours of reading the Bible to the people. 
And you're going to see there the men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Guess what, folks? You have a responsibility when you go hear a sermon. Did you know that? You have a responsibility, and that's to be attentive with your ears and your heart. Is to be attentive. Push aside all the things of the world and to be attentive. You know that the last half of this book, the first half, one through seven or so, is telling us about reconstruction. The last half of this book is about the people inside the walls, how Nehemiah wanted to instruct them in the word of God. And here he starts to do it. He calls Ezra the priest. He brings out the five books of the law. And he says, men and women, stand up. And they do stand up. And they listen for six hours standing. And they're on the edge of their seats hearing the word of God. They're attentive to it. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose, and beside him at his right hand, for lack of a better way of saying it, were 13 Levites. That's who these people are. They're people who minister in the tabernacle. They're Levites, though, so they're priests. You get that? Or they're people who minister in the uh, tabernacle. Remember, if you were from the Aaron line of the Levites, you could be a priest in the tabernacle itself. If you weren't from the Aaron line, but you were a Levite, you ministered in the, in the tabernacle. Get that? But you didn't do what the priest did. Get that? Anyway, so you got 13 Levites, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And what did he do first? He prayed to the Lord. He gave praise to the Lord. I bless you, Lord, the great God. Then all the people said, so be it, so be it. That's what amen means. And while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now, I want to just tell you something, folks. Many people believe great worship is only when they've been moved emotionally by music. And that can be great worship, fantastic worship. Of course it can be great worship. God can do anything, but I want you to see something. Here, the people were hushed like that. And the word of God just brought them down low, humbled, because what does the word of God do? And they were worshiping, and it was quiet. It wasn't loud. They didn't have to jump around. It was quiet. And why? It's because the word of God shows you who you are. It shows us who God is, but it also shows us who we are. And these people had been a people who had drifted from the Lord, like we drift from the Lord sometimes, or have been outside of the Lord and are coming back. And they knew it, and there was a holy hush when they recognized who they were in comparison to who God is. That's worship. So they fell to the ground. And also these other people, these other people, their Levites, helped the people to understand the law. Now, if you have a home fellowship, or if you've ever been to a home fellowship, guess what was going on right here, but it wasn't at home. Ezra would preach the word, and it seems like, kind of like, some people believe he'd preach a portion of Scripture. He's standing up on the wood platform. you got these Levites out there in the crowd, and they, what would they do? They would discuss that portion of Scripture, and they would help teach them what it meant for them and how it applied to their life. 
home fellowships. Here's the beginning of home fellowships. This isn't at the home. I understand that. But you have these people who understand the word and can rightly divide the word, and they help people to understand the law. It's important that you, as much as you can, search out the scriptures to understand it as much as you can. Now, you might get frustrated with that because in first read, you can't understand everything that's in the Bible, nor will you for your whole life. But you're moving and growing in that direction. Understand as much as you can. And there's people there to help you, not to totally uh, do it for you, but to help you and to assist you. And of course, the Holy Spirit is our best guide. Isn't that beautiful? And they stood there in their place. So they read distinctly from the book. That means, that word distinctly means in a way that they could understand. That's what these teachers were doing that day. They were helping them to understand in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Now, folks, we all say this. We want spiritual awakening awakening and revival. Spiritual awakening is when the church returns to the Lord. And what are some of the things that happen first? Well, here's what happens first. There's always a faithful preaching or a return to the faithful preaching of the Word of God. And they're attentive people who listen to the Word of God, not just so they can check it off on a one-year or two-year Bible plan, but so that they can understand it and then go out and do it. That's one element of the revival or spiritual awakening. You know what Ezra and Nehemiah did? They made sure that the word of God, listen, that the word of God was first and foremost in the life of the city and the life of the people. Guess what you're supposed to do for your own self? Make sure the word of God is first and foremost in your life and in the life of the people who are around you. Make God's word at the forefront of everything. Listen to this. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, very famous pastor, if you don't know him, he wrote the kind of the seminal, the, the best work or one of the greatest works on preaching and preachers, and that's what his book was called. He said the primary task of the church and of the Christian minister is the preaching of the Word of God. You mean it's not, um, well, anyway. Okay, I won't say it. The primary task of the church and of the Christian minister is the preaching of the Word of God. The decadent periods and eras in the history of the church have always been those periods when preaching had declined. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to cleanse and revive the hearts of the people of God. If there is to be an awakening or a revival, folks, there must be faithful preaching of the true Word of God and not holding anything back and not changing anything. Because other people want to meet you halfway. Or the world wants to meet you halfway. Not changing. And then, look on, we're almost done. And Nehemiah, verse 9, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept. Well, you say, well, why were they weeping? Well, come on, you know why they were weeping if you've studied the Bible. Because the gospel, or excuse me, the, the, the law of Moses was given so as a schoolmaster to point you to a savior, which means when you look into the law of God, you say, oh no, I don't measure up. <laughs> but that's okay, according to the gospel. 
because Christ measured up for you. But what does the, uh, when you look into the word of God, you say, oh my, thou shalt not steal. Uh Uh-oh, I've done that one. Uh, Thou shalt not murder. You say, well, I'm in the clear there. No, I'm not, because Jesus said, if you've hated somebody, you've murdered somebody. This is the one that's going to get all of you. I know this is going to get every one of you here. Thou shalt not covet. If you've said you haven't coveted, I know you're lying. Because we've all coveted. We're all guilty under the law of God. And you say, what hope is there for me if I can't measure up to the law? Jesus. Well, they're weeping. And when they heard the words of the law, they wept because the Law was a schoolmaster driving them to a savior. It's a holy law. Yes, it shows us the heart of God, but it shows us that we don't measure up. And then he said to them, go your way. By the way, there's this real sense of our sin and not measuring up to the standards of God in all revivals, every single revival. And the problem with America right now is we want to tell everybody else how bad they are, even in the church. Man, you do that and you do this. We have no sense of our own sin anymore. We study all the time. We listen to 10 sermons this week. You didn't, and you believe in that, or you believe in this, and you don't believe like I do in that way, and you don't believe in that way, and I do. You, you, you. That's what the church is about now. And here it says, when you read the Word of God, it's about, oh, no, Lord, I've offended you. I've violated your law. That's what's... Uh, wrapped up in revival, coming back to the Lord. It's knowing the word of God and weeping over our sin. And then he said to them in verse 10, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. In other words, share all that you have. For this day is holy to our Lord. Don't sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, there's so many ways in which the joy of the Lord is your strength, folks. He sings over you. He joys right now. Do you know this? Some of you don't know this. The Lord joys over you. In fact, he sings over you. The, he joys over you. So, so that gives you strength because you're so well received and loved by the Lord. That right there. But then also, I want you to know, we quote this all the time. We don't even know where it comes from. The joy of the Lord is tied to the word of God. Because when you see, and I see, all that God did to get us back into his family, man, if our circumstances are in toilet or on top of the mountain, it doesn't matter. Because I'm like Nehemiah, just derived my sense of worth from the Lord. And man, can I walk stable then. Insults flying, fear being thrown at me, oppression, enslavement, all the things that rage around you in the world, yes, I can still just walk peacefully right through it because the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so you keep going. And on the second day, look at this. Oh, wait a minute. So the Levite quieted all the people saying, hey, quiet down for the day is holy. Don't be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. And they said, he said, listen, I understand <laughs> You're grieved over your sin, but today, remember what month they're in? The fall, those fall months. Today, we're at the place of the festival. So what are we to do? 
Remember all that the Lord has done. And what did the Lord do? He, he, he created in Leviticus 23 a feast of tabernacles. Now, this is just one of seven feasts. You know that, right? One of seven, uh, seven feasts. The first one is Passover. You know that? Second feast is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right connected to uh, Passover. Uh, one and the same almost. Passover is one day, Feast of Unleavened Bread, seven day. The third feast is the Feast of First Fruits, which takes place on the first day uh, of the week after Passover. Then the fifth feast was the Feast of Trumpets, which took place on the first day of the seventh month. Catch, a, catch it, we're in the seventh month here, corresponding with our month of October. Then the sixth feast, Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, took place nine days after the Feast of Trumpets. Okay, why am I telling you all this? Because the last feast is the one we see here, the Feast of Tabernacles. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. And what does it signify? Remember, come on, folks, I know you watched that. What is it? What movie is that? Uh, Anyway, like a Disney movie that you do. I know you watched when they came through the Red Sea. They were, you, you watched Prince of Egypt. There we go. I know you watched that. No, you never watched that? Okay. Anyway, what are the Feast of Tabernacles? Feast of Tabernacles is when they wandered in the wilderness, God gave them sticks and, boo- and then they created booze and they lived. And it shows how God preserved them even in the wilderness. That's one thing that they do. And today in Jerusalem, guess what they do? They put stuff up in their backyard still, or in Israel. They still put it up in their backyard. Whether they sleep out there or not, that's a different thing. But they still do it. It's the Feast of Tabernacles, and it's a time to rejoice. It's also a time to think about the ingathering of the harvest. And there's also a prophetic component to it. We won't go in tonight, but this is the last feast. And it's a time of rejoicing to the Lord for all that he's done. And so what he's saying is, I know there's a time for your grief. There is, but now let's... Let's, let's be happy and rejoice in the Lord. So on the second day, the heads of the Father, house of all the people, verse 13, were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. How many times? They just keep doing it. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities into Jerusalem, saying, go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil, myrtle branches, palm branches, branches of leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Let's do what God required of us in the book of the law. You everybody tracking? Leviticus 23. Let's redo that. We haven't done it forever. We've been up in Babylon. Let's do it. And let's give thanks to the Lord. And let's recognize that. So the people went out, verse 16, and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or the courts of the house of God in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat in the booths for since the day of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness also day by day from the first day until the last day. In other words, for one week, they did this six hours a day. He read from the book of the law and they kept the feast seventh days. Now, wait a minute. Hold on. You all are slipping out. I know it's late, but you got to see this. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly. On the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. Now, look, look, look at me. Old Testament, New Testament, and there's a chapter called John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Every day during the seven days of the Feast of the Tabernacle, 
there's this place up here. It's called the Temple Mount. And they would walk down past David's city, and they would go kind of where Hezekiah's tunnel were, and they start going down, and they get to this place, the Pool of Siloam. The priests would do this. During this festival, seven days, it's an eight-day feast, they would traipse back up, they would take their water jugs up on the temple steps, up in the temple area, and guess what they would do with the water? They would pour it on the ground. You know why they'd do that? Because God has provided even in the wilderness. And on the eighth day, they would go down to the pool of Siloam, but they wouldn't get anything. They wouldn't get any water. And they would come back up on the eighth day, and they would get up on those steps, and and the priests would do this. They would do this with their pitchers, and nothing would come out. The priest would pour out these empty pictures. They would even quote, some say, Isaiah's prophecy that God would pour out his spirit upon them in Isaiah 44. And the people around would pray that Messiah would come. The eighth day. Now turn with me to John chapter 7. And this is where we close. Verse 37, you ever read this and not know what the last great day was? Verse 37, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, (laughs) think about it, the priests have walked up there, it's the great feast, the jugs have been poured out, there's no water. They've quoted Isaiah where the spirit would be poured out and they'd bow their heads and they would pray. Oh, Lord, send the Messiah. And Jesus, on the last day, that great day of the feast, stands and yells and says this, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In other words, right there, right then, he was saying to all the people who are listening, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one. All those people there. When you turn back here, you say, my goodness. Why, why, why is God and Nehemiah having these people do this? He was preparing their hearts. He was bringing the Messiah through these people. He was preparing their hearts to know that Jesus is the one. Hmm. You want to be rebuild your life? Are you bored? Are you confused? You don't know where to turn. You have no more answers. Jesus said, if you'll come and drink of him, if you'll come there, you just stay there. You'll abide under him. Listen, he will supply you, which is the Holy Spirit. It says it in the later verses of that John 7 passage. He'll give you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come to live in your life, and you'll have water, life gushing out of your life. Who doesn't want that? Do you want to go around life bored? 
unsure, unstable, don't know where you're going, don't know where you've been, confused, afraid? Or do you want to live in the shadow of the Almighty, like a tree planted by the water? Well, I think I know the answer, but uh, as we close this week, uh, Nehemiah, what an amazing book. And I pray that you and I would be people who would seek after a revival for our church, the church body, the nation at large, until the Lord comes back. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much. And uh, we just ask, Lord, that you would do a mighty work here. I pray, Lord, that you would start with us, just this little group of people here in southwestern Pennsylvania. I pray, Lord, that we would be people who take your word seriously, that we know all the benefits of your word. And then, Lord, as you start to help us understand that word, that we would go out and do your word. And Lord, in the middle of that, keep us in that place where we mourn over our sins. As you seek to do a new thing in our hearts, refresh us and revive us, would you, Lord? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.